Let's quickly chat to Mandla there. Mandla, good evening. How are you doing? I'm good, thanks. Good evening to you and the listeners. Great stuff. Listen, mate, what I just wanted to check with you is, I mean, we had a very sort of interesting conversation the last time we heard from the president, obviously, when he told us, listen, we're moving to level three. I think I was a little more optimistic at that stage about what level three meant. Uh, how are we going to get yeah. through level three and, and, and you know, how are we going to see the opening up of the economy? Okay. Now, for me, I, I find it absolutely fascinating looking at, uh, you know, some of the announcements that he made that it's pretty much still sounds like an Oros version of level four where, yeah, the economy is still opening up, fewer restrictions, et cetera, et cetera. But by far and large, it, it's still pretty much the same um, with very little that has changed. Or am I missing the boat here? Well, well, going by what the the president has stated and uh, the some of the information that is, is starting to filter out from GCIS, I read it as um, quite a major um, relaxation mm. uh, with level three. Obviously, we're going to need to see some of the um, obviously once the ministers start to get into the details, of course. Mm. But it certainly seems that some of the restrictions on manufacturing and things of that nature will start to be unlocked. You know, it seems to me that um, the president wanted to accomplish three things today. Mm. The first was announcing the reduction to level three as of June 1. The second was around defending the lock, continuing to defend the lockdown strategy, the risk-adjusted approach of having saved lives. And the third was was to manage the politics. Um, You know, some of the key issues include the controversy around this ministerial advisory council, um, you know, the, crit- the, the critics, criticism of the lockdown approach, which is starting to become, you know, increasing from both the DA and business um, and, and other other commentators, as well as the issues around the school reopening. Um, so within that, I mean, I think that there's two kind of parallel things that are at play. There's the political debates around, you know, how best to balance the health response with the management of the economy, the DA is starting to become very vocal about this. Business has been consistent since very early in the lockdown, um, you know, that we need to allow as much economic activity to happen as possible. But then as well, there's obviously the scientific debates, and I think these have actually gone um, fairly unexplored. Um, mm. You know, so the president is, is continuing to lean on... Um, I think there's two arguments that are, you know, when I'm following the global scientific debate about this, there's sort of two main arguments, and, and the president and our administration is, is sort of proposing the first, and then there's an alternative. So the first argument is that, you know, COVID-19 is going to cause unconscionable loss of life in societies mm-hmm. unless government-mandated ma- action takes place. And, and a lot of this, one of the figureheads of this is Professor Neil Ferguson from the Imperial College London, who had put out a report, sort of said March, where he said that without significant government action, the UK would lose, could have something like 500,000 deaths. Um, you know, which is obviously a nightmare scenario that spurred the UK into action and many countries have followed suit. Numbers like 2.2 million deaths in the United States were thrown around. Um, for comparison, to date, the UK is like currently about 32,000 deaths. And obviously, I don't, I don't, it's, it's very difficult to talk about these statistics because I don't want to sound as if I'm, I'm downplaying the very real human cost of these issues. But, yeah. um, but that's, that's kind of the, very, the first argument, which our government has largely got behind, right? So the, the consistent line from government is that we would, we would have huge numbers of deaths, similar to these other countries, if we hadn't had the lockdown, and our health system would have, would have collapsed if we didn't have this time to prepare. 
Mm-hmm. The alternative um, scientific view is that actually the risk of death is overstated. That studies like this, the study by Neil Ferguson significantly overstated how fatal the disease is, that um, it's, it's much less fatal, and that um, also that the virus has followed actually a similar pattern across societies regardless of lockdown stringency. So if you just look at the numbers, you know, countries like, you know, something like 100,000 deaths in the U.S. sounds, you know, sounds huge, similar to the U.K., but, we, but actually when you really drill into this, scientists talk about excess deaths. So the number of excess deaths beyond the deaths you were already expecting from natural causes, the Ferguson study implied excess deaths of like a year's worth of natural deaths in Europe, Mm. Obviously, it's completely frightening to government, but the scientists are arguing that actually the, the number of excess deaths that you can expect is closer to, at least in the Europe's case, a month, um, a month of natural deaths, which which kind of changes the calculus that you might make. So this mm. argument, in particular, that the virus follows a similar pattern across societies, Professor um, Sunitra Gupta from the University of Oxford. Oxford Arguing that actually societies like the UK got infected much better, kind of. I'm just losing you there quickly, um, Amanda. I just wanted to point out, just, just um, if we can just sort of keep that position now, because you're sounding clear, but we lost you there for a couple of seconds. But yeah, you were saying. Let me just. Yeah, so Professor Gupta is arguing that by the time the lockdown began, as much as there's there's, there's evidence that as much as. We lost him. Okay, we'll take a quick break. 20 minutes past 9 o'clock. What we will do then is we'll take a quick break, get him back, and then just wrap up that particular conversation. From there, what we can do is then we can obviously also look at uh, what uh, Professor Shabir Ahmed Mahdi has to say about all of this because uh, Mandla, in essence, uh, you know, led up to that, the issue of the science. What does the science actually tell us? Because that's the thing for me is that, uh, you know, I'm not, and I'm, this is not directed at him. Oh, we have Mandla back, so maybe we can continue the conversation it's not a case of um you know only sticking to your lane mandla what i'm saying is i'm not expecting you only to stick to your lane i'm not saying that you shouldn't you're not in a position to speak about the science behind this but i will be speaking to uh professor Mahdi as well about the science especially sort of the uh virology that we're looking at at this particular stage i just want to take you a step back quickly and this is just in the interest of time uh mandla sure. what, what i'm worried about here is are we doing enough at the stage? The last time you and I chatted, we were looking at an economy that has basically ground to, an, uh, to a halt. Level four didn't do much for the economy, I think, from my personal observations, um, especially if I think about the fact that government is expending huge amounts of money right now as we speak. Um, there's not, not much coming back in the form of taxes uh, because of all kinds of reasons, but also largely because there's very little business activity happening at the stage. Um, today and uh, in, in throughout this weekend, I've driven past innumerable um, car dealerships, as an example, that some of which are massive and, and are massive brands in this country with great support that are standing empty. And I, and I don't think that the owners have decided to remove those vehicles and keep them safe in their personal garages. So what I'm just getting at is, are we seeing enough happening at the stage uh, to, to, to kick off the economy? Um, and, and, you know, to deal with this issue, yes, to deal with COVID-19, but simultaneously also to deal with the other problems that we have in this country overall. Look, I mean, I, I certainly don't think so. I think the numbers that are starting to come out, we're, we're, we're seeing estimates that uh, unemployment of 50 percent, 
um, up from close to 30% pre, pre-COVID, um, uh, massive government um, sort of budget deficit of, of in the double digits, as well as um, debt to GDP skyrocketing. You know, I certainly think, I'm certainly of the view that, uh, you know, I, I certainly am leaning towards the school of thought that says, um, you know, the economic damage of lockdown. So, to be, I mean, to be fair, there was going to be some damage already from the fact that um, con- countries that we sell, that we export to, um, were experiencing turmoil, as well as companies, countries that supply uh, inputs to us. But um, I think that some of the, the reactions that we've had in terms of the lockdown have been needless. You look at examples like, um, you know, we, we stopped exporting wine. This is wine that was already packed in boxes, in, in, in factories and distribution centers that was ready to be shipped. And we took the decision that we wouldn't ship it during the lockdown. Mm, mm. I think when you're, when you're in a country that was, that's facing the decade-long economic crisis that we faced, that, you know, with the huge social and economic challenges that we have, we should have been thinking um, around, you know, maximizing low-risk economic activity, I think certainly, you know, after the initial kind of three-week lockdown, which I don't think anyone disputes what needed to happen for government to get a handle on things. But I certainly think that we could shift into higher gears. Um, Obviously, things like the the creative industries, I think we need to be creative around things like e-commerce. I've I've been disappointed by the the approach taken from trade and industry, which, which has seemed to to kind of be very willing to, to, to limit activity, I would, have, I would have much rather seen us being creative and innovative about using technology um, to make things happen. You know, to what extent should we, can we get our creative industries playing, you know, can we, can we stream uh, theater? Can, can actors, uh, you know, for example, participate in plays and things of that nature with no audience in the building and then stream it on our screen? Can we be creative? around things. Can mm, we see mm, what can mm. we still export that's low risk? I think we're going to have to be very creative because this is going to be the new normal. It's going to be with us for, you know, several months, certainly at least the rest of this year. And the economic data that's coming in, not just from ourselves, but countries like the UK, um, you know, the economic impact is looking horrific. And I think as the numbers, as the impact, as we approach the budget next month, I think Treasury has said around June 24th, we're going to get that adjusted budget I think that's going to sharpen the minds um, of our of our political politicians that we absolutely are going to need massive, massive, um, you know, a really an economic strategy that is, you know, creative, huge in scale, and mm. um, and very strategic if we're going to limit uh, the damage. A uh, final question for you there before I move on to Professor Mahdi. What I wanted to find out from you is in terms of the education, um, you know, um, the fact that kids are going back to school, uh, but also with certain limitations in place. Um, uh, obviously, we can't have a conversation like this about the political as well as the economic impact without necessarily looking at the impact on education. Um, is it good enough? Should we have expected more? Or is this, in essence, what should be expected at this particular point in time? Because we are dealing with something unprecedented, uh, unprecedented something that we're seeing for the very first time. Um, that the fact that we, we can't just have kids returning back to school um, normally 
but what does this mean in terms of the impact that it has on education, especially thinking that you're probably going to have a whole bunch of concessions that would have to be made by the end of the year in terms of cutting down on the curriculum, um, you know, making adjustments uh, based on the uh, academic year, et cetera, et cetera. What are some of your thoughts in that space, uh, considering that you know that um, ultimately education has a massive impact, not just on our economy now, but into the future as well? I mean, this is a challenge a lot of countries are dealing with. Um, one, one of the things that we know from looking at the impact of the Ebola crisis in West Africa um, and, and other crises is that, you know, when, when children, particularly poor children, lose a year of school, it can have quite a devastating impact uh, on their development, their ability to, to go on to finish school, um, mm. be educated, and go on to become productive adults. Um, the, you know, the science, you can speak, obviously your next guest can elaborate, but it seems as if, um, children are at lower risk. They seem to get milder forms of the disease. And also, of course, we do know that, you know, something like uh, the, the vast majority of kind of severe case, severe reactions to COVID-19 and death um, tend to be people over the age of 60 to 65. Um, and so, you know, it seems that the risk calculus um, would, would indicate that countries should get students back into schools because the, the, the risk appears to be manageable. Um, as opposed to the kind of devastating social impact on learners if they lose a year of school. So I support the, I support the, the, um, the government's decision to reopen schools. Yeah. Um, obviously, you know, it's a tough political task to manage all the consultations with the teachers unions and, and parents and stakeholders. And, and so I certainly don't envy um, the Department of Basic Education that task, but I think it's the right call. I think that's another uh, a can of worms for us to unpack at one point or the other, the, the need for consultation to such a large extent. I'm not saying the government should pull a unilateral move. I guess we don't like it when government pulls unilateral moves anyway. But uh, one of the key things that we do have to ask ourselves ultimately is uh, when it comes to a decision like this ultimately, um, that should be the decision of the Department of Basic Education. Should we be in a position whereby um, it seems that all and sundry needs to be consulted in this one? But that's a conversation for another time, I guess. Thank you so much. All the best to you. It was a great chat again. Thank you, Mandla. Thank you, Gosh. Well. Cheers, man. That was Mandla L. Isaacs, um, you know, talking to us about uh, obviously the impact, the political impact of the speech. He's saying that, look, it is going a long way. Um, my initial assertion that this is pretty much the same um, is not quite fair, uh, at least from a political uh, perspective.